Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the University of Georgia is getting millions in federal funding to continue their research in Parkinson's disease. And we'll find out what this major investment means for continued brain research and for neurological in neurological disorders. And also, introducing micromobility in a car-oriented city like Atlanta can come with many challenges. So we're headed to Detroit. Kind of, sort of, we'll turn to MoGo, a bike-sharing service in Detroit, for suggestions. And our Women's History Month spotlight is on Mary Frances Early. In 1962, Early would become the first African-American student to earn a degree from the University of Georgia. They say that I was an unlikely candidate to be at Georgia because I was self-selected. No one asked me to go. And I knew that whatever happened, I would have to accept the consequences because I did select myself to go. All those conversations coming up ahead. But first this, Georgia senators are proposing a much more modest income tax cut than the $1.1 billion plan passed by the House. Now, at the same time, they're trying to sharply reduce tax breaks for film and television productions, which we all love. The Senate Finance Committee voted yesterday to make major changes in the House proposal. Now, that could set up a showdown between the House and Senate with a week left in the 2022 legislative session. The Senate proposal would cap the film tax credit at about nine. $900 million annually and ban film companies from selling the tax credits they can't use to others. Hmm. Speaking of state lawmakers, major steps for mental health care reform at the state capitol as a key as a, as a key bill has passed out of a Senate committee. Raul Bali reports there is mixed reaction, though, to the changes to the Mental Health Parity Act. Mental health and substance abuse advocates have been worried about protecting strong language in the bill that would require mental health to be covered by insurance companies, just like they cover physical health. Jeff Breedlove with the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse believes the new version moves away from that, specifically when it comes to defining things like generally accepted standards and medical necessity. We have concerns that the Senate language might well be a situation where they're letting the insurance industry write both the definitions and sort of what it means if you're in violation of them or not. We're concerned they might be putting the, the, the fox in charge of the hen house. Conservative advocates are happier about the bill since references to the World Health Organization were removed, among other things. The next step for House Bill 1013 is to get scheduled for a vote in the Senate before going back to the House. At the Georgia State Capitol, Raul Bally, WABE News. And finally, changes to Confederate imagery at Stone Mountain State Park remain on hold as the board that oversees the park tries to finalize a contract with a new management company. Now, the previous company decided not to renew its contract in part because of the controversy associated with the 90-foot-tall Confederate carving on the mountain. Stone Mountain Association CEO Bill Stevens says the board is working through the complexities of a new contract. We do know that we have a hard date for a transition of August 1st, so we're trying to back into that by having a management agreement done in April or May. Meanwhile, plans approved nearly a year ago to relocate Confederate flags and create a new museum to tell a more complete history of the state park remain only in the planning stages. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, there's no treatment or cure for Parkinson's disease. Now, there are various medications, surgeries, and even some therapies to relieve symptoms. But again, there's no cure. And in 2015, then Georgia's longtime Senator Johnny Isaacson revealed he was living with Parkinson's. But Isaacson didn't retire until 2019, after 45 years of public service. Johnny Isaacson died last December. He was 76 years old. His alma mater, the University of Georgia, is also home to the Johnny Isaacson Center for Brain Science and Neurological Disorders. Now, here, research is dedicated to Parkinson's and other brain disorders. And now, UGA is receiving $5 million in federal funding for Parkinson's research. This is part of the spending package recently passed by Congress and signed by President Biden about two weeks ago. Joining me now with more is the first Isaacson Chair for Parkinson's Research and Georgia Research Alliance eminent scholar is Dr. Anamata Kathasami. He's also Director, Center for Brain Sciences and Neurodegenerative Diseases. Welcome to the program, Doctor. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Uh, nice to be on your show. Let's begin by informing for some of our listeners who may not be for sure, but what is Parkinson's disease? So Parkinson's disease is an incurable chronic neurological disease uh, disease that affects millions of people worldwide. The symptoms are starting with the early slight tremor in the hands, mostly Mm -hmm. in the uh, thumb on one side of the body, Mm -hmm. then progresses over time to the entire body that uh, almost completely mobilizes the patients, uh, affects mostly the movements. Hmm. But we know that affects also other areas of the body. You know, it's estimated that worldwide 10 million, 10 million people are living with Parkinson's disease and nearly 1 million here in the United States. Uh, doctor, what does science tell us, tell us about who's most at risk for the disease? So there's a risk factor. There are two groups. One is the, the chemical exposures that are people exposed to certain chemicals like pesticides and certain metals and the communities that are exposed to a lot of these chemicals that mm-hmm. have a high risk of Parkinson's, including farmers. Mm-hmm. And the other group of a 10% of the disease being linked to some gene genetic mutations or the replication of certain genes. So what we know currently about 10% related to the gene defects, 90% related to the environmental exposures to chemicals and the other causes that currently, currently we don't know. Do we know then it, it can affect, can it affect several members of one family? Is there any research that reveals in terms of uh, it being hereditary? It, of course. Mm-hmm. I think uh, starting 1999, we were able to, uh, the scientists were able to identify at least about 20 different genes. There are families, if you have, uh, you know, um, offsprings and you know, generation-wise, you have a lot more Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. then it's like we need to look at the closer, uh, look at the gene uh, analysis and to find out whether they have any specific mutation that's been identified. I read where you said, I'm going to quote you, we've been able to diagnose Parkinson's for more than 200 years, but we still don't have a treatment that can cure the disease or even stop its progression. So before we go deeper into the research you all are doing at UGA, just how far has research come in the time that you've been involved in this? I think the research has come quite a, quite long, and I think the diagnosis has been improved. If you're looking at the imaging data, that is uh, the, image, the, the neuroimaging uh, techniques improved, and um, the neurologists were able to identify at least currently about 70 to 80% accuracy. Mm-hmm. with the Parkinson's, uh, Parkinson's patient. So there is significant improvement in the, early, in the diagnosis. But suddenly that we don't have early diagnosis, only the symptom arises, then the neurologist can do multiple testing, including imaging, and then can the diagnose the disease. Are we seeing more folks being or participating in clinical trials? And how obviously helpful is that 
in terms of the research and being able to one day, as far as the, the progression is, ter- is in, in, in terms regarding a treatment and possibly a cure. I'm wondering how are people actively participating in clinical trials? The community, the uh, Parkinson's community is very actively involved. And I think they're determined. It's pretty impressive and uh, humbling to see how many people willing to commit their time. Uh, some of the examples are currently the NIH and Michael J. Fox are running mm-hmm. long-term study. This is all several years of long-term follow-up studies, primarily diagnosis to until they have some even, um, you know, until their death. Uh, there are people are committed to contribute to their um, um, time, as well as samples, you know, blood samples, CSF, and and also there are clinical trials and new drug testing. So the community is heavily heavily engaged mm-hmm. with the research. So I think they're committed to find out and get some better treatment for the disease. As mentioned, the five million dollars that you all are getting in federal funding. Obviously, as a researcher, I know, and as a scientist, because I've asked everyone this question, they they say there's never enough, but this is a start. What will you all primarily focus on? So one of the goals, that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you were chose, um, Senator, late Senator Isaacson got a distinguished career on his behalf, you know, honor the senator, the families and friends and the state has invested uh, to set up a center to on Parkinson's disease and other neurological diseases. So we want to recruit, I've been recruited to UGA about uh, six months ago. Mm-hmm. Currently we are in the process of recruiting additional uh, researchers, uh, professors from various uh, places. Uh, we have hoped to recruit at least four more in the next couple of years. So we need to have a team science approach to address the disease. So the funding, the federal funding helps us to set up some infrastructure as you know, if you want to recruit a people, you need to have a good infrastructure that includes such equipments. Mm-hmm. So we will be spending this funding to improve the, our uh, research facilities. I have a listener who just uh, emailed me a question and wanted to know, what does your research say about Parkinson disease affecting uh, communities of color? It is, a bit thick, as I mentioned earlier, community of color tend to have, you know, the lifestyle and the exposure to chemical exposure has been often occurs the new had some of the you know we, we always see in the news people exposed to pesticides and metals working in a farm farming industries so there is a, suddenly there is a disparity there um, in terms of the disease sex, uh, you know, occurrence but i remember also reading um doctor it was a it might have been from u.s news or npr i don't want to get it wrong because i'll get an email but i i remember reading something last year it was about there was more Americans are dying from Parkinson's disease. There was a study that came out um, that had increased like over, I think, 60 some percent in the past the, the past two decades. Was that that may not be lost, lost on you, but I guess for normal folks like me, we're like, that's that's alarming. Well, I think there was, you know, the disease, it's a slow progression. It's not as, you know, um, one of those things, what you see, some certain cancer or something. Mm-hmm. It's a progression is slow. There is ultimately the death, right? So um, there are some increasing cases, but I don't think it is compared to other countries, right? We have um, higher incidence that I'm not aware of that statistics. Uh, but uh, I think there was a, over time, this again emphasizes how urgent is the research to find those better cures, not, as you mentioned, not to only treating the symptoms, slow down and ultimately cure the disease. So that's been a main focus now. Well, meanwhile, what are, are there any new treatments or just therapies? I know there are even, there can be some surgeries, correct me if I'm wrong, but where are we on that front? Are we seeing advancements in those areas? So surgical treatments there, that's called deep brain stimulation. Uh, people have the symptoms, severe symptoms. So there are very few patients qualify. Not everybody qualifies the surgery and also it's very expensive. So those can correct some of the movement, the um, uh, disabilities associated with the disease. Uh, but in terms of the treatment, still we are treating the symptoms. There are several trials to see whether we can test, slow down the disease. Those tests be um, uh, 
trials have been not not that been successful. So that means we need to completely look at the entire the what we call as the scientists call as a pathogenesis the mechanism and see what are the areas that we can really um, attack and develop some new treatments. You were over at Iowa State, correct? Yes, I was. I was there for twenty-two years. And you came down. To, you you like Georgia, though, right? You you're here. <laughs> Indeed, it's much warmer. I can I can complain. I had a really nice uh, winter compared to previous twenty-two winters I had. I love to ask this question. How how did you, how did you become for this to be your research? There's a passion behind this, but I'm just curious how you, Parkinson's disease in particular, because you've been studying this for a long time. Yes, I think so. I trained this in my background as a chemistry undergraduate and biochemistry um, as my PhD. And then by training, I become neuroscientist and neurotoxicologist. I always interested in chemicals, how that affects the human uh, um, health and disease. So that's kind of a passion for me. And then I grew up in my early childhood in the um, southern part of India mm-hmm. in a farming community. So I have this personal connection, see how that really wanted to see that the chemical exposure to disease that's really uh, excites me that's been i've been working on last um most 30 years well then let me ask you this on a global front then where are we, are we seeing more advancement if nations are able to work together i mentioned 10 million worldwide living with parkinson's disease and just a million here in the united states so what's the connection there and are we seeing some progress if there is a a collaboration among nations here Absolutely. There is a collaborative effort. Uh, there are some joint grants that the NIH funds with other countries, National Institute of Health. Um, also, Michael J. Fox Foundation funds the researchers from all over the world. So there is a there is a really strong community of researchers, and we have a national meetings, national international meetings that scientists get together and share their research and highly collaborative. I collaborate with a lot of people overseas. So there is a, when it comes to research, there is no boundaries. The mm-hmm. global globalization is there. Nothing stops us. I think that's uh, everybody's uh, focused on one thing to get this a better cue for this Parkinson's patient. And I want to be able, be able to get this last question in. It is from a listener who wants to know, why does this disease tend to affect men more than women? That is true. Um, men, again, there is occupational, right? There is mm-hmm. a Men tend to be a little more on the side of having a um, exposure to certain chemicals that I mentioned. So there is one reason. Still, we don't know the cost, but I think that's uh, one of the hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I think that's that's where we stand. Uh, at the same time, there may be some hypotheses that women, the estrogens, have some protective effects in the early stages. So that may have something to do with that. But we don't have a real conclusion why there is a difference. But I think the exposure to chemical risk and potentially the some inherent uh, um, protection against certain hormones and the differences between male and female might be having. That's the differential susceptibility to the disease to, towards men. Well, we certainly want to stay on top of this. Dr. Anamata Kanthasamy is the first Isaacson Chair for Parkinson's Research and Georgia Research Alliance eminent scholar. Also director of for the Center for Brain Sciences and Neurodegenerative Diseases. Good conversation. Thank you so much for what you're all doing to tackle this disease. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. My favorite subject, K-Ride, our engineer. He rides a bike. We're going to talk about micromobility and biking because that's what y'all love. Now, last month, I spoke with Ashley Finch. She's the Atlanta Department of Transportation's new shared micromobility coordinator. And she talked about the department's plans for improving micromobility in the city and acknowledged some growing pains. Now, Ashley also said she's keeping an eye on what other cities are doing and especially in terms of accessibility. When you're looking at accessibility, you have to look at payment options, types of payments that are accepted, our sort of user experience with the apps. So I just want all of that to be as accessible as possible. And so I'm continuously working with our operators to see what innovations are out there. 
um, to have more inclusive and accessible devices, as well as, um, like I said, I, I talked, I spent a lot of time talking to other cities that mm -hmm. have great programs. And, you know, we just want um, Atlanta's program to be the best that it can be and to be a model program. So we wanted to know, are there model programs out there? So our micromobility producer, at least that's what we're calling him for today, Daniel Razel said, let's go to Detroit, Michigan to get some insight on implementing a bike share program in a car-oriented city that works, we think. Joining me now is Adriel Thornton. He's the executive director of MoGo, a nonprofit organization operating bike share throughout Metro Detroit. Adriel, welcome. Hey, welcome. Uh, thank you. It's really, uh, really nice to be here. You ride a bike. Do I ride a bike? <laughs> yeah, you ride a bike. That's the first question. You ride a bike? I ride a bike all the time. What, well, kind, of, what well, kind of bike you got, Adriel? You know what? So I, I actually use our bikes a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. which are yeah, which which are really convenient that way I don't have to rack my bike but mm -hmm. when I do rack uh when I do opt to ride my own bike um I have two one is a hybrid uh which is just a combo between a street bike and, sure. and a mountain bike and then I also have an e-bike uh oh. that I use my, uh, which my, is a track. my engineer is loving this segment let me ask you this is Detroit a bike friendly city be be honest <laughs> <laughs> Nope. Well, you know, it's strange. It is get, it's becoming more bike friendly. Um, I think that I know that at least in 2019, we were leading the nation in installing bike lanes and bike infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, like from a, from a mileage standpoint. Um, but I, you know, I, I have to say that uh, we're still battling uh, uh, a sort of car centric mindset here. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the city itself wants to encourage bike riding and wants to you know, keep going with, with bike infrastructure. But um, I think some of the people here got to need, need to learn a few things. Well, let me ask you this in terms of mindset, if you were sitting down and I imagine you have sat down with city leaders and, and, and policy makers and everything you said, okay, let's get in the mindset of what a bike friendly city or a micro mobility city should look like. And, and they said, okay, then what are those metrics, Adriel? What should we have? Is it bike lanes? Is it parklets it's whatever what what did you have what have you said in the past about what makes an effective bike shared friendly city right it's it's a it's multiple things right so one um first and foremost i think that uh public uh public information or public knowledge or public education would mm -hmm. be um critical to it we have a lot of folks here uh, in this city, you know, we are the we are the motor city who don't necessarily realize that they need to share the road with bikes. Um, so, so that is to me the first part before you get to any infrastructure mm -hmm. or anything like that. That's the most critical thing. Um, it's really an education piece, but or educational campaign. Um, but but then it does it, it's road diets, um, it's uh, streetscapes, mm -hmm. it is bike lanes. It's all of the above that really really. Uh, would, would really change the, the dynamic here. But understandably, one thing I do want to put uh, put into play here is that Detroit is a massive city uh, from a geographic standpoint. It's mm -hmm. 300 something miles, square miles. Um, you know, Manhattan, San Francisco, and I think Boston can all fit inside of Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of area to sort of uh, to deal with um, when it comes to putting in, say, bike infrastructure, right? So. Um, it's a, it's slowly but surely happening, but there's a lot of space uh, that we have to fill. Do you think people even understand what the definition of streetscapes is as well? Um, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're necessarily your your, your layperson does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's but they but they are able to see it here in the city. Um, the city has identified a few areas in town with with some strong uh, commercial districts um, or commercial quarters that they have they have done streetscapes in. They've, they've remastered the street, you know, reduced the, the lanes, um, added bike lanes onto that, had uh, uh, butt outs uh, so that people could, could access buses easier and those things um, and a different parking configuration. So they can see it, but they may not necessarily understand what it is, but there are examples of it here. How long has MoGo been in Detroit? We've, we launched in uh May of 2017. So we are approaching our five-year, sixth season, fifth-year anniversary here. And you consider yourself obviously a nonprofit transit service, is that? We are. We're, we're a nonprofit organization that, that runs uh, the bike share system here. 
And so we, we like to think of ourselves as first and foremost, a transportation option. Um, you know, people obviously ride bikes, however they want to ride bikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we operate, for instance, you know, we're in a colder environment, we're in a northern environment. Um, but unlike uh, some other cities, we actually keep our bikes on the ground for 365. Really? Uh, yeah, it's available 24 seven, 365 days a year. And knock on wood, but to to date, we have not had a single day where we did not have rides, um, which which I say that to bring up the, the idea that this is a needed transportation option uh, for some folks that those people who are riding on, you know, polar vortex days or, <laughs> or blizzard days are not doing so for recreation. Right. They need to you get know, to work. They, they work need to get to they, where they have yeah. to go, you know, so it really does uh, exemplify like the necessity of a system like this. And are these e-bikes and, or just regular bikes? What do you all offer? We have, we have a combined system. Uh, it's it's uh, standard pedal bikes and uh, e-bikes, which are pedal assist bikes, which means that the, the more you pedal, the, the more of a boost it gives you. And let me ask uh, you this. There's something unique about um, your, your pricing structure as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the most, uh, I think, unique thing about it um, is what we call our access pass. So a regular, a regular annual membership uh, pass is around ninety dollars. Mm-hmm. That gives you full access all year. Well, we have that that very same pass available for folks who qualify for state benefits, uh, like like food assistance, childcare assistance, home assistance, all those things that uh, the state will provide for you. Um, if you qualify for those programs, you then get that annual pass, which is normally ninety dollars for five. Hmm. It's $85 discount. <laughs> that, that's, that's all right. And also you, you, you all have it set up where you can connect with folks that need to connect with the, with Detroit's public transit system, correct? Yeah. So we actually, we, we, we got a grant not too long ago, uh, uh, by the better, better bike sharing partnership. Um, it's called a living lab grant and our project, which is called connected D or connected, um, is working on that right now where we're, we, we've already uh, identified some of the barriers to multimodal use, and we are coming up with solutions now so that you, you can get off of MoGo and get onto either DDOT or SMART. We have two, two bus systems here. Uh, From when y'all started in 2017 to now, you're, mm-hmm. any, in terms of percent, percentage, your ridership, how much has it increased? Um, well, it, you know, it fluctuates. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, especially during during the, the pandemic. Well, la- last year was better than say 2019, which is where the last year that we sort of count because we're 2020 and 2021 were so anomalous. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, our, our casual ridership went up like way, way, way above, but our member ridership went down um, because the use cases for both of those are a little bit different. Um, I will say that our access pass uh, program, right, with um, those memberships have increased they, they are now at around 28 percent of our total membership uh, which is a great great number uh, to have that that sort of equity and inclusivity piece in there and i'm curious uh, how many bikes do you think you all have out i mean you said you keep them out you know 24 7 365 mm-hmm. what's that number and the maintenance we, we, are, we, we yeah we so our total fleet um is uh, about six six twenty one something like that, with 80, 80 of those being e bikes, um, and so you know during the winter we do we do pull some of them back in. It's mm-hmm. not necessary to have all of those out in the streets all the time, but we we subcontract uh, or partner with an organization called Shift Transit, which actually does the actual maintenance um, and rebalancing for us. So you know it's constantly uh, uh, they're, they're they're on it all the time. <laughs> How is your relationship with cities, city officials or with the city in terms of everyone working together? Because all this is part of micro mobility. It's something that Atlanta's mm-hmm. been working on for a long time. And obviously we hear about public private partnerships have to be key in this. How is mm-hmm. that relationship in Detroit with MoGo? It's been, you know, it's, it's great. The, the, you know, the, the city um, really, again, we're, we're an uh, independent operator. So we work with the city all the time, but it's not really, not really managed by the city. Mm-hmm. However, um, we do work closely with the Office of Mobility Innovation there um, at the city. And uh, it is likely that we will be working even closer with them 
uh, with some things that are potentially in the pipeline. So we have we have a great relationship. We work with uh, uh, DP, you know, the Department of Public Works all the time, which we which we need in order to determine sometimes where our stations are going to go. Um, you know, there's permitting and all that kind of stuff that, mm-hmm. that goes in it. But you all have competitors up there, right? Do you have the Uber bikes yeah. and Lime or Spin or whomever's out there well, now? I don't know who's left. We don't. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have. There are no other bike share operators in the city, but we really. Do have, no, it, none. Y- y'all are the, the y'all are the big dogs up there. Yes, <laughs> um, which is great because again, you know, it's until to, somebody know, just hear this interview and said, "How come we not in Detroit?" Let <laughs> right, right, right. Well, let me say there are no other bikes there, but we do have a number of scooter companies that operate uh, in the city, um, and that that's you know that's where the competition comes in, right? So yeah, but we're, we're also investigating ways to, to work closer with them, right? Um, so. Um, you know, it's it's a it's again Detroit's such a big city that even the scooters can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, again, it, it's it's really sort of figuring out solutions that we we all we all have the same objective, right? Which mm-hmm. is to to get people into the habit of you know taking uh, carless trips, right? So if we can convince people here that they don't have to get in their car to run up to the the party store that's two blocks away, then that's a win. Right. No matter how they do it. Let me ask you this. And this is a great question. With the city being such a large area, uh, how do you all assess or reassess the best places for docking stations? So it's really we uh, we look at things like where other transit lines are, um, density, um, you know, sort of things like, uh, you know, commercial corridors nearby. Um, We really do look at we, we assess a lot of different things. Um, because again, it's, it's not just about putting bike share stations where the, sh- where the shopping center is, right? Mm-hmm. You also have to put it somewhere within the neighborhoods to complement that so people can have a way to get back and forth. Um, but there are some places in the city that are pretty vacuous, so it may not necessarily work. I have a question. Uh, I also have a question from Steve. He says, please ask about bike lane maintenance. Does that mm-hmm. fall on you all? That does not follow. Us. I didn't think so. Uh, yeah, but no, that's DPW, and they have you know they've uh, since they really started putting down uh, a large amount of bike lanes here. They have bought special specialized equipment um, of snow plows for bike lanes, and also cleaning uh, machines that that fit in the bike lanes. Well, let me ask you this: because here in the Atlanta area, there's been some concerns, issues. Well, the bike lane is here, but it's not in this community, or. The bike lane mm-hmm. starts here, and then in a block, it's gone. Are you all happy? Would you? How well, would you, you grade? Know. Wait a minute now. How, how would you grade Detroit's <laughs> bike lanes? Y'all have enough? Would you like some more? I don't want to, you know, ruin you your chances of getting another grant, but right. I would love some more. Um, here's the thing. Here, it's the it's kind of the opposite. Um, I think there's actually been more pushback. Um, on the bike lanes, uh, and I think that it, again, it's the public education pushback from who? From black folks, to be honest with you, from the community here, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, the sort of idea, at least in Detroit, is that uh, a bike lane is a precursor to gentrification. You know, and so folks have really uh, mistakenly thought that if you know, they put a bike lane in my community. You know what's next? They're going to be pricing us out of home, Starbucks, blah, 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 all of that. Well, right? you, well, you know, there's that joke. If a bike lane or Trader right. Joe's comes <laughs> in your neighborhood, look out. <laughs> You've heard right. that. Well, let me ask it's you. It's a wrap at that point. Well, but so, let me ask you, you're a man of color. How do you address yeah. that? So what I say is, hey, look, as a people, we've been riding bikes for forever, right? So without bike lanes and without protection and without really anything to make it really uh, uh, as safe as possible for us, right? So for me, the bike lane coming into a community is long overdue, you know? And, you know, it's an opportunity. If people are not moving, let me say this, justification is not gonna happen in every area that we're putting bike, that the city's putting bike lanes in, it just isn't. Um, so to me, it's really about the change of the narrative in people's heads about what this is for. I think it's because We've been so used to not having amenities like that, sure, in, in our neighborhoods and in our communities that when they come, there's a but little suspicion about right, it. Right, but you also know there are so many other optics around that because if if you got to go to the grocery store, you mm. can't bring all that back on the bike. You know that, so there's a whole but but you know there are a whole yeah. lot of other optics around it. 
got about two minutes left. Got another quick question here. Uh, you all, you don't need to have a smartphone to access these these bikes either, correct? How'd you, you all get don't. around that? Um, we have, so we do have a, a pay with cash option, which is really we use cash app at this point. Um, but right now we are, we are looking at some kiosk type uh, uh, services mm -hmm. where people can just go wherever those kiosks are to be able to pay with cash. And if you had to impart just one nugget of wisdom for a city looking to improve its own bike share community, what mm -hmm. would it be? Make sure that you do community meetings for places that you are planning to put bike share stations in. If you don't tell the community that they're coming or that they're for them or how to access them, you're not going to get buy-in for them. You have to tell people that. you got to have that meeting, uh, which we do all the time. you got to let people know what this thing is and who it's for, which is them, um, and then more importantly, how to access it. And then I would also say, speaking of access, integrate an access pass or some sort of discounted uh, membership into your, into your pricing structure. Sounds good. Adriel Thornton is the executive director of MoGo, a bike share service operating in Metro Detroit. Thank you so much for taking the time. When you come on to Atlanta, we're going to get on a bike. All right. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. All right. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, y'all know. There was no way we'd let Women's History Month end without profiling a trailblazer right here in Georgia. Mary Frances Early made history in 1962 when she became the first African-American student to earn a degree from the University of Georgia. And she studied music education, went on to become a leader in her field as the first African-American elected president of the Georgia Music Educators Association and was named head of the music department at Clark Atlanta University. Now, we spoke back in February of 2019, but since then, well, Ms. Early has released a memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, My Journey as the First Black Graduate, of the University of Georgia. And she spoke with our own Lois Reitzes earlier this year about the book, and you can find that online. But as we honor Women's History Month, I'm going to revisit my conversation with Mary Frances Early from 2019. And I'm honored to be joined by Mrs. Mary Frances Early. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Thank you for having me. You know, whenever educators are on this, this program, I have to behave, make sure, you know, just be yourself. <laughs> you know what? I was reading last year on the UGA campus as your portrait was being unveiled, and you said, quote, I'm sincere when I say that I'm not accustomed to this hoopla. During those two years at UGA, I couldn't have envisioned anything like this because the reception was different. I'm just so delighted that a part of me will still be here to hang in this special place. How yes. special is UGA for you, Miss Early? UGA was very special. Although there were some unpleasant things that happened, mm -hmm. I look upon it as a period of growth for me because I'd grown up in segregated Atlanta mm -hmm. and I sort of anticipated, but I really thought that graduate students would be more mature, but they weren't. It's okay though because it gave me the confidence and helped me to be a better person, a better administrator, a better teacher. Are you saying there was growth in that, in that? sometimes what might have been a painful environment for you. Yes. The most, I guess, the worst thing that happened was the loneliness. Now, there were incidents like throwing lemons at me in the uh, dining hall and throwing rocks at me on the way to the post office, but it really hurt to be ignored. I think everybody wants to be acknowledged, and that was something. I'm, I'm a gregarious person, so I, I, it was hard for me to get used to that. Did you at any point think, you know what, maybe I should just rethink this and, you know, seek another institution? No. I had gone to the University of Michigan. I had left there to come to uh, to transfer to UGA. And it took a long time for them to decide to let me in. But when I got in, there were so many people who were helping me. And I knew that I owed them. I owed them getting that degree. So, no, I never felt that I needed to stop and go back home or go back to the University of Michigan. And you grew up right here in Atlanta. That's right, in Summerhill. Summerhill. And music has been a part of your life from a very early age. Very early age. My dad would sit us down on Sunday evenings, and we would listen to the Bell Telephone Hour. And, you know, they played classical music, like classical, opera, mm -hmm. you name it. And I loved, I loved classical music.
and he did too, apparently, but my brother less so. At any rate, um, we couldn't go to the symphony because it was completely segregated, mm-hmm. as were all cultural events in Atlanta. And you played piano and clarinet? Yes. I took piano at the age of eight, and I uh, stopped after a year because my teacher would wrap me on the fingers, when I, on the knuckles, when I made a mistake. And I think it was because I couldn't see well then. I don't see well now. Mm-hmm. But I think it was because I didn't see the notes as well as I should have. But uh, I did continue to play because my dad bought me a set of the Universal uh, Library of Music, mm-hmm. International Library of Music. And it was a subtle, I guess, suggestion to me to continue to play. So I did. But my main instrument was the clarinet. You love the clarinet? I love the clarinet, yes. And you attended uh, Henry McNeil Turner High School? Yes. I was in the first graduating yeah. class of Henry McNeil Turner High. It was the first time I'd ever had a brand new textbook. Because when we got books in elementary and high school, Washington High and Howard High, I went to three high schools, mm-hmm. uh, they were always from a white school, always had the white school printed in the front. Some of the pages were torn. I just wanted a new book. We got those at Turner. What conversations did you have, or what were the conversations like with your parents about segregation and, and racism? They taught us that we were, my brother was 18 months older than me. They taught John and I that we were as good as anyone. They said that we could be anything that we wanted to be as long as we were prepared. They did not focus on the segregation. They knew that we saw it. We witnessed it almost every day. They never taught us to hate people because of the way they treated us. We simply hated the system. And speaking of the system, your decision to transfer, to come back to Georgia, you were watching television one night up in Michigan, and what did you see? No, I was at home. I was teaching, right. Mm -hmm. I saw a riot. Uh, We had a little black and white television, and I was living with my mom. Although I was teaching, I was in my fourth year of teaching. And uh, I saw this riot, and I said, they can't do that. They need to protect those students. They should not be suspending them and sending them back to Atlanta. And I decided right then and there, I know what I can do. I had watched the sit-ins and the, the students who were protesting in Atlanta, and I wanted to help them, but I knew I couldn't. I knew that I could not... I could not do that or I would be fired. So I could go to school, and I did. And these are your former classmates. You knew Charlene Hunter and, and, and Hamilton Holmes. Yes, I did. I had done my student teaching there and at, at, at Turner. And uh, Charlene interviewed me about um, my writing the school song. Mm-hmm. I knew Hamilton not less well, but I knew that he was a top student. And uh, actually... He and I both were valedictorians of our mm-hmm. respective classes. So I knew them, and I, I felt, you know, these are my fellow Turnerites, and they should be protected. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mary Frances Early. She's the first African-American to earn a degree from the University of Georgia in 1962. There are some other accomplishments. We're going to get to those in just a moment as well, because, you know, Mrs. Early, you talked about the loneliness on that campus, and you talked about people throwing rocks at you and people throwing lemons at you. And you talk about perseverance and grit and not to, I'm sure there are a lot of folks that can share that type of story, but you share this story often to younger folks. Do you think the, the impact, do you think they understand the impact and what folks like you all endured so that we are where we are in 2019? While it's not perfect, obviously there's still a lot of ways to go. That's a whole nother conversation. But what you all endured to make it possible for even folks like me? I think most times they they are a little curious about it. They don't really understand because I think you have to experience some of it yourself in order to really understand. But I think it brings them to an awareness that things have not always been the way they are now. You You couldn't then go to any restaurant or go to any movie. You couldn't do a lot of things. You had to drink out of a, a colored water fountain. I often wondered, does it taste differently? But young people today, I do, I say that a lot because I want them and I tell them, just get the steel in your back 
and do what you have to do because you came to get an education or you're here to get an education and you need to stick to it. You don't let anyone take your dream from you. And you have, over the years, you've, they call you the silent trailblazer. You have, Your story, a lot of folks didn't know your story. And you, you never boasted about it. You just went on an incredible career as an educator. But then that changed a few years ago with a, a professor at UGA. Tell our listeners that story. Yes, Maurice Daniels was interviewing uh, Attorney Hollowell and Jesse Hill, Jr., about the Horace Ward story. Mm-hmm. He was doing a documentary on him. And I'm amazed today that there's one about me. But anyway, um, and he found, they to- both told him that I was the first to get a degree. He had, Maurice was teaching on campus, but he had never heard my name. I was forgotten for 38 years. And so he did some research first. And then he called me and said, are you the first to get a degree? And I said, yes, I, I was the first to get a degree. And he included me in that documentary, as well as Charlene and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I never refute the fact that they were the first to come in. Mm-hmm. I, too, entered in, in 1961, though, five months after them. And my story was not told, but, you know, they say I'm a quiet trailblazer. Yeah. I'm not that quiet. <laughs> But I'd never bragged about it because there was no need. There was no need. As I think Martin Luther King said, truth crushed to earth will come to life again. Uh, that's, that's so true and very perfect for you. In reading about the, the time in your life, you mentioned that you were a very quiet person. Well, people would say, or you said you see you're not that quiet. But, you know, as your story is being told and then UGA is celebrating you, um, how are you handling all that, though? You know, you said, I don't like a lot of all this hoopla. It is. It's difficult. I was there two weeks ago, and, you know, they treat me like royalty. And well, they should. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uncomfortable with that many times. I've learned, I try to learn how to be gracious and and respond to it as best I can. But it isn't what I'm accustomed to. I'm just a quiet person, usually. <laughs> but when someone steps on my feet, I'll just tell you one thing. When I was going to the the uh, post office and boys started throwing rocks at me, one of them hit me under my eye, just underneath my glasses. And I thought they could put my eyes out. Mm-hmm. And I picked up a rock and threw it back. And I said, I'm not as nonviolent as you think I am. And But You know, I think you have to, don't let people make you a stepping stone or doormat. But I think you have to do it in a way that is amiable, if you can put those two together. Understood. Duly noted. It's interesting because at the time of this conversation, just within the hour, the AJC, there's an article that says one out of 12 students at UGA, African-American, and there's still a lot more to do. Why? When you hear that, what goes through your mind? You know, it, it, it bothers me. I think that we need to get Georgia closer to looking like the demographics of Georgia. And I keep thinking that it's going to happen, but so much has happened over 58 years. Mm-hmm. And it makes me proud to know that now we have a diverse student body, and students don't seem to choose by the color of their skin as far as friends are concerned. They just simply are friends. Mm-hmm. And it's based upon who they are. The other thing is that University of Georgia, out of 629 public universities in America, University of Georgia is rated as number 13. That, to me, says a lot. Mm -hmm. And it says that I, I never tell students where they should go. But black students need to take a a look at UGA because there are so many things that are there that are good. What role do you think UGA could do, or what can they improve upon? I know they have some; they have a diverse diversity department, but are they doing enough? Would you like to see them do more to to recruit and and you know make sure they're getting students so that that population looks more reflective of the state of Georgia? Well, I, when I was there two weeks ago, I spoke to students from Clark Central High School and Cedar Shoals and Kipps Academy here in Atlanta, and it was a very diverse group. I was pleased when many of them came up to speak to me and to take pictures, of course, and selfies. Uh, these, this is a way that they have to. They have to reach out 
to students, not only in the Atlanta area, but also to uh, all over the South. Mm -hmm. And I think that eventually it will happen, but it's not going to happen overnight. You and I both know that uh, it's not about the destination always. It's the journey. And you look, you look back at your journey, not just in being a trailblazer, but throughout your career as an educator here in Atlanta Public Schools, as throughout the Atlanta University Center, and your journey and its purpose and you being a part of that, it was, would you say that that was the way it was meant to be? They say that I was an unlikely candidate to be at Georgia because I was self-selected. No one asked me to go. And I knew that whatever happened, I would have to accept the consequences because I did select myself to go. The journey has been an amazing one. I could never have imagined. I mean, when I was growing up, I never would have imagined that I would have been a pioneer in Georgia. Being recognized at that time was not that important. But I think that um, as the years have gone by, people have have noted that there were three pioneers in 1961 and not one. And I was privileged. I was privileged to have the opportunity to help. I have a letter from Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And in that letter, he said that he was, he looked upon me more as a member of his church rather than a visitor, and that he was congratulating me for bringing America closer to the, the, sorry, bringing Atlanta closer to the American dream. You still have that letter? I st- well, it's the original is at the Russell Library with my papers, but I have a copy of it, yes. Mary Frances Early, first African-American to earn a degree from the University of Georgia in 1962. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you f- for paving the way for folks like me. I owe you. Thank you. And I owe you. Thank you, Rose. From our February 2019 conversation, with Mary Frances Early for our Women's History Month Spotlight. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker because he always rides a bike. And a reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of the day's program, it's always online to wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can also find Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast So you can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it is free. And we're still trying to determine whether or not pods is a just a new version of saying podcast pods. Is that, you know, I'm kind of old, so I don't know that that's what the kids are saying now. Just pods. Kevin. Yes. He doesn't know. He said not this kid. (laughs) Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.